Thanks, Bella. Great. Thank you, Rob. Let's keep that open, shall we? We'll have a look at that passage from Judges together in the next few minutes. Let's pray, though, for the Lord's help as we do that. So, Lord, we thank you for your word and for Jesus, the living word, and we pray that as we think tonight about the world, about living in this world, and about being your people in this world, we thank you for a deliverer for Jesus, and we pray that we may be given your wisdom and your spirit's help to live faithfully and in this moment to listen to your word and respond with hearts of faith and trust in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were trying to describe the Western culture we live in today, I wonder which words you would use. If maybe someone a hundred years after us were able to say to you, describe what it was like to live in the first couple of decades of the 21st century. Uh, You might say to them, well, our our culture, it's it's a very visual culture. So uh, the most powerful global companies are those who work in the world of media uh, and of Netflix and so on, the visual age we live in. Uh, You might say our culture's a lot about the culture of identity, of, of defining myself as who I am. That shows itself in the cult of the celebrity, uh, the, the TV dramas that follow the lives of famous people, uh, the rich and the famous, but also we see it in the very hot debates at the moment about gender, about whether I'm defined by the body God has made me in or by the person I feel I am trapped inside that body. Who am I? That's one of the big questions in our age, isn't it? Now, we think about Christian faith and our culture. And going back through the centuries, it's always been the way that the Christian faith has wanted to fill up culture with Christian values and art and so on. It's been a wonderful influence upon culture. It's also always been true that there's been a conflict going on between the Christian worldview and aspects of our culture that are godless, that are against that. And that conflict sometimes, uh, where it's not been recognized by the church, has actually led to compromise, where we've allowed the culture to shape the church too much. So we look too much like the world around us. You know, the old thing about how it's very good for the boat to be in the sea, for the church to be in the world, uh, but it's a very bad thing if the sea gets into the boat. Well, this is a very short series, just three sermons. The third one is next week. Uh, tonight we're looking at this whole theme of how Christ, how Jesus, is right there in the Old Testament. Wherever you look for him, on every page, you will find Christ. Sometimes oblique, sometimes concealed, but you'll find him there. It's, it's a bit like, like an Where's Wally. If you look hard enough, you will find him there. In the olden days, apparently, probably still the case now, a coffee merchant trying out a, a batch of coffee that's come off a container ship, bags and bags, um, won't test every single bag, but they'll go and just randomly choose a bag, open it, put their hand in, and, and smell the aroma of the coffee. And the aroma, the, the notes, the flavors they get there will be the same as all the way through the whole batch. It's that same way with Christ. Wherever you dip into the Old Testament, you'll get the aroma of Jesus there if you, as it were, sniff for long enough. Well, judges, this is where we are tonight, and this question of how do we find Jesus, how do we find the, what we've called the deliverer in Judges. It's a very colourful book if you've ever read it. If you haven't, 
go home and don't read it last week at night because it's got some gory stuff in it. But it's full of kind of Marvel action figures, heroes. And time and again, they deliver the Lord's people when they have become oppressed by the peoples, the culture around them, when the the water's sinking the ship. They're called judges, not because they sit in courts and wear wigs, but because the Lord has sent them, amongst other things, to judge the faithless people of God, to call them back to God when they've turned away from him, to enact the Lord's judgment, as it were. They are warriors, most of them, but they're also preachers, We're going to see that it was the task of the judge to speak the Lord's truth, to call people back to the Lord in faith, not just to go around fighting battles. They lived, if you're kind of wondering when when was this, in the 300-year sort of period down to about 1,000 BC, and that's before the first king, Saul of Israel, uh, was crowned and his successor, David, uh, the most famous of the kings. So the period before the kings after entering the promised land under Joshua. The deliverers are heroes. They're also flawed. Their deliverances are therefore short-lived. They don't last very long. Israel quickly goes back into trouble once one of the heroes has rescued them. That's why the book ends. It's worth actually just flick on with you to the end of the book, Judges 25. Keep a finger in Judges 2 because we're going to spend our time there in a moment. But Judges 25 ends with these quite enigmatic words, puzzling words. The very last verse after this long story of chaos, disaster, deliverance, more chaos, more disaster, spiraling downwards, in fact. It ends with that phrase, that last verse, in those days Israel had no king. And it's kind of a code, a kind of explanation. Everyone did as they saw fit. And I think you could say that Judges is a book which is crying out for a deliverer who can lead Israel in God's ways, who can end the chaos, end the compromise with culture, and make the ship of God's people seaworthy and secure at last. The search for a deliverer, that's, I think, a good way to look at this whole book, uh, in the shape, of course, of a king a Messiah, a deliverer. So Judges 2, let's go back there again. Now, where is this little section we've had read sitting in Judges? Well, if you go to visit um, the civil battlefield of Naseby, uh, you can drive up and just park and walk across the fields and imagine when the battle was, who fought the battle, where the troops were, where the cavalry were, and so on. Just make it up for yourself. You could do that. It's quite difficult. Um, You're probably better to start at the car park where there's a big notice board explaining when it happened, why it happened, what the different armies were, and a map of exactly which armies were where and moved where during the battle and who won. That's kind of what Judges 2 does in Judges. Uh, Lots of drama following on. The action heroes like Gideon and Samson and Deborah are going to appear and do their thing. But if you read this section, it kind of gives you the overview, the background picture. This is who's doing what and why they're doing it. So Judges is about the spiritual patterns, meanings, challenges underneath all the events that follow. That's Judges 2. The passage begins on a pretty positive note, doesn't it? Verse 6, Joshua having 
conquered, effectively conquered the promised land, sends each of the tribes to the allotted territory that they were given. All seems good. The people are serving the Lord. But the problems start in verse 8. It is quite a bleak passage. It's it's almost quite a bleak book. Verse 8, Joshua dies. The rest of that generation that enter the promised land with Joshua dies. And we're told in verse 10, a second generation. So this has got a second generation immigrants to Canaan now arises. Two things about them, we're told, that they do not know the Lord. It's a telling phrase. They do not know the Lord. That Hebrew, the biblical personal knowledge of God is not there. And second, they didn't see, they hadn't seen what he had done for Israel. They had not witnessed the victories the Lord had given them when they entered the promised land, the battle of Jericho and so on. They don't know and they didn't see. So I guess God was a name that they'd heard their parents use, and they'd probably been to church and heard some of the stories of Jericho and Deborah and so on, uh, and the incredible things that God had done when they first entered the promised land, but they, they weren't a personal reality for them. There was no personal trust in their hearts. And the consequence of that double ignorance, they don't know, they didn't see, is our first point. And each of the points, it's just three words. The first word is this, rebellion. Rebellion, verses 11 to 13. Now, before we look at these verses, a bit of background to the practices, the Canaanite religious practices that Israel now lived amongst. The Canaanites... Uh, the Philistines, the other tribes around them, were pagan, we might call them. They worshipped, that means, many gods, not one god. Many gods. Uh, we've seen them in our reading. They were called the Baals, who were kind of the daddy gods, and the Ashtoreths, who were kind of their female consorts. Many gods, not one. And their religion is a, a religion of works. It's about what we do, performance in worship by us, that is designed to secure blessings from the gods, economic blessings and family blessings. So it was very much tied up with the idea of fertility, of harvest. The belief goes that the the Baals, the Ashtoreths, they're the ones that control the rainfall and the harvest. So if we worship them enough they'll give us lots of food and money next year. And also lots of children along with that. Keep them happy and they will look after you. Man-made religion. It's always like that, isn't it? The religion that, that we invent. It's always about coercing the gods, persuading the gods to bless us. Whereas in the Bible, faith is all about trusting the Lord, not coercing him. Now, getting into our passage now, God God had made a promise to his people. When they uh, left slavery in Egypt at Mount Sinai under Moses, and he's reiterated again since in Deuteronomy, that he would bless them and give them the land to be their possession, and in response, they would be faithful to him and not mix with the other tribes and not follow their gods. It's a covenant, it's like a marriage commitment of exclusive Love and loyalty. And at the beginning of this chapter, uh, 
in uh, verse 2, the angels reminded them of that covenant they'd made and that they've begun to break it already. They have mixed with the other tribes and they've even begun to worship their gods. Our passage pulls no punches, does it, in describing what the Israelites, what the church, as it were, are doing. Verse 11, let's start there. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Not just, you know, they, they lost their way a bit, they messed up a bit, they did evil. No messing around. And they've done evil, stupidly, like parking on a double yellow line with a traffic warden watching you. They've done evil in the eyes, under the nose of the Lord. That's what the, the phrase really means. He's seen it. And then the writer multiplies the verbs, the the things that they have done. And it's all them. Do you see that? It's they, they, they. They, verse 12, forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They, verse 12, second half, followed and worshipped various gods, the various gods of the peoples around them. Verse 13, they aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him. And then, Later on, towards the end of the passage, even when the Lord graciously sends deliverers, and don't worry, we'll come back to the positive uh, with them in a minute, even when he sent deliverers for them, even then, verse 17, they still, strong language, prostituted themselves with other gods. See how deep and persistent and personal this rebellion is. It is the language of, of abandoning your faithful partner and going off and paying a prostitute instead. It's shameless, it's deliberate, it's stubborn, verse 19. They're stiff-necked, is the, is the kind of literal sense there. They stubbornly won't turn back and admit they've got it profoundly wrong. You see, just a reminder for us of, of human rebellion. We call it sin in the Bible, don't we? It's deliberate. We're the active partners. Can't blame fate or family or fortune. It's deliberate, it's defiant, turning our backs, forsaking the one that loves us. It's dehumanizing. If you notice the word serve or worship comes up several times here. We were made like Joshua did to to be servants of the Lord. But here they are, and here we are, if we're honest, in our hearts, bowing down to things that are no gods, to things that we've made, and serving them instead. What a reminder this, this little section is that It's no good, is it, saying, oh, my my parents are Christian. Or, you know, I I used to go to youth group when I was younger. Someone said, God has no grandchildren. You're either children of God or you're not. You either know the Lord or you don't. You either see his works and trust him or you don't. So trusting the Lord is a decision a dedication for each one of us in our own generation to make, isn't it? What a reminder. What maybe a challenge for someone here tonight. It's a warning here, isn't there, that when churches, when we start to drift from the Lord, we often do it using man-made things, even religious things. Now, pragmatism, you know, that just means doing things that we think will work rather than principle. So they thought that a few offerings of um, a sacrifice to Baal here, a bit of cultic prostitution there with Ashtoreth. Uh, If it works, what's wrong with it? Today we put our trust in other gods, money, 
Churches are not primarily run by money, but by faith. Worship as performance rather than as service of God. Flashy strategies. Even, even the amount of faith we have, we can put our trust in our faith rather than the one that our faith is in. So culture is a subtle thing, isn't it? Full of wonderful things, culture, but it's also full of dangers, isn't it? It's not a neutral thing, culture, is it? The culture of the Canaanites was full of things that would draw Israel away from faithfulness to the Lord. And they fell for it, and in our generation, I suspect we're humanly none the wiser were it not for the Lord's grace. But there's good news. There is good news. We're going to see this in a minute, but Jesus, remember Jesus, he came, if you remember the story of his temptation, he faced profound trial and temptation from the culture he lived in, and yet he was faithful, wasn't he? He did not give in to temptation. Where we blew it, where we rebelled, he resisted sin perfectly. But before we look further to Christ uh, and how we see Jesus here, let's, let's go on to our second point. A short one, this one. Retribution. Again, I'm sorry. Not a nice word again, rebellion, retribution. But verses 14 and 15 do describe, don't they, God's response when we rebel and forsake him. The Lord's anger was aroused, we saw in verse 13. It's repeated in verse 14. Uh, Because of his anger, the Lord gave them, so he takes over, and it's, it's now the Lord's, his actions, his verbs, he gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. What a sorry sight within a generation of entering the promised land. He sold them into the hands of enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Why? They won all the battles when Joshua first led them through Jericho and Ai and so on. Why are they losing now? Well, because, verse 15, whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them now. They abandoned him. He has almost temporarily abandoned them. And they're defeated as he had sworn. He'd told them this would happen. And thus it proved. They are in great distress. Now, there's mercy here, isn't there? The Lord could have wiped them out because of what they'd done. And just said, that's it. I've done all that for you. All the way from Egypt. All the way to the promised land. I give you the... And you turn your backs on me. That's it. And he just sends a nuclear bomb. That's it. Israel gone. He doesn't, does he? Mercifully... He delays that judgment, that retribution, and he simply allows the Canaanites to live in the land with the Israelites to be a bit of a, as it says in the beginning of the chapter, a thorn in their side to test them, to test their faith. And his retribution is partial and delayed. It's also a very just thing that God does. He had warned them that if they walked away from him, he would not give them the land as he promised. They hadn't kept their side of the covenant. And he's simply enacting what he said would happen. That language of anger, we may find that difficult. Now, why does God get angry? Well, it would be odd, wouldn't it, if, if a husband found their wife with another man and in doing so showed no emotion, just didn't care. No reaction to her unfaithfulness. So you might think of Israel here in Judges and us today, actually, as on probation before the Lord. We're being tested, aren't we? 
by the world we live in, by the trials we go through, by the temptations we face. The Lord is testing, proving, drawing out, and in grace, strengthening our faith in him. James says the same thing. Uh, God sends and allows trials for our good. Not a simple thing. We can't simply say, well, when something hard happens, that's God's judgment on me. Uh, But it's certainly possible, I think, to say in terms of a culture which has anti-God, anti-truth, anti-Christian values within it that draw us away from him, that is in part the Lord testing us and proving if we'll trust him. So today when we suffer afflictions and hardships, the temptation isn't, is to blame God for them. And just to say, Lord, just why won't you take this away? Why is this happening? And there are many possible answers the Bible gives to that question. But one of them, and it's not simple, one reason is that we're assaulted by enemies like temptation, like persecution, like sickness and death. Because he's left such things in our fallen world to keep us awake as Christians. To test whether we'll still trust him or whether we'll just compromise and go the way of the world. So when those things happen, they'll be happening for people here in this room this evening. At the moment, they will be happening for us all in, in our lives. Will we use those things to thank the Lord for being faithful to us even though we weren't always faithful to him? And will we use them to call us to genuine, lasting repentance? Will we cry out to the Lord for a deliverer? For the Saviour? For Jesus? Just in a side here, I wonder if it is it too much to see in the way that Israel is suffering at the hands of their enemies, the raiders, the plunderers that are oppressing them, is it too much to see there's something, the sufferings of Christ, at the hands of his enemies? He went to the cross, didn't he? Uh, And the New Testament says he was handed over, given over by the Father. He gave up his own son for us to his enemies. Not because he had been unfaithful, though, but because we had. The justice of divine retribution leads us to the paradox of grace. He walked the path of judgment that otherwise was rightly marked out for me. So that's the story of Judges so far, isn't it? I say it's quite a bleak picture, isn't it, so far? Rebellion, it's very humbling, and retribution. But there is a third thing, and it's rescue. Verse 16, what a change of tone. Describing the Lord, giving over the people to their enemies, to oppression, not going out to fight with them, but fighting against them. Suddenly, verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those raiders. Having sent the raiders against them, he now sends a rescuer to save them from them. That's a cycle, actually, that, that comes up again and again in this whole book. If you ever read Judges, you'll see this. Three little stages. We see them now. Rebellion against the Lord. And then retribution at the hands of their enemies. The Lord hands them over to their enemies. And then thirdly, rescued by a deliverer, by a judge. That's where the judges come in. That is the good news of this book, of the Bible. that We may deserve judgment, but God sends a saviour. 
Again, it's the paradox of grace. Why does he do it? Don't if you notice why he does it here. There's almost no reason given. It's just that they were suffering. He sent a saviour. Verse 18 says that the Lord, you see that there, he relented. Or he changed his mind, you might almost say. If you're prepared to use that quite bold language of God. He changed, he repented because of his compassion. Because he saw the suffering they were going through. Isn't that interesting? It's actually very important, isn't it? It's not that we repent and so he then shows us compassion. He repented of the retribution he was bringing upon us and showed us grace. Just reminds us that the the judges are weak. They can lead God's people back from pain and hardship and suffering to some extent, but as judges shows us, the people, well, they may have a momentary repentance, but there's no real reformation of their hearts. They're back worshiping idols again the week after, bringing the wrong things into church the following Sunday. Judges leave the church waiting for another better deliverer because the judges are not able to do that. For a perfect king, as we've seen. And as we get to the New Testament, Matthew announces him. He tells the story of the kings of the Old Testament. Then he gets, the end of chapter 1, to Jesus. And remember what it says, uh, the angel says to uh, Joseph, you have to call him Jesus because he will save That's what Jesus means. He will save his people from their sins. A deliverer's coming at last. One that's trustworthy, that's flawless, and that's eternal. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that it's when we were dead in our transgressions and sins that Christ, who died and rose for us, made us alive with him. It's when we were hopeless and not even turning for home that he came and called us. Now, today we have many enemies, don't we, as followers of Christ? And I don't mean simply human beings, uh, but the spiritual challenges we face. Many and powerful sin that binds our hearts. We each have particular sins that we know can bind us. The world can tempt our eyes. Creative things look so compelling, don't they? Suffering can crush my spirit. Death can steal my faith. And we say, don't we, what's going to rescue me from this body of death? What's going to rescue me? And it won't be, will it? We've seen a mere human leader. The judges were all fallible. It won't be a politician. I probably don't need to persuade one at the moment, do I? It won't be a politician that rescues us. It won't even be a parent. It won't even be a pastor except the great one, the great shepherd, Jesus. He is our powerful deliverer. He's our compassionate rescuer. He died to wash our sins away. He lives to break the power of death. And he reigns so that one day even death itself will be no more. And yet you say to me, don't you, my heart's slow, Richard. You know, with all, I know it's wonderful, but my heart's so slow to really turn back to God. I'm not very good at this repenting thing. I'm weak, I'm false. You should see my private life. How do I know the Lord will actually forgive me as well as everyone else? That Christ really loves me, that he really receives me? The things you don't know? Well, the answer here is because of grace. 
He doesn't rescue me because I have enough repentance or enough of faith or enough of a good life, but just because of grace. God sees us touched by sin, oppressed by trials, and unexpectedly says, well, I'll send your deliverer. In a sense, you deserve to be in this fallen, brutal world you live in, but I will send you a deliverer nonetheless. Grace hears us groaning and enacts judgment on Christ on the cross instead of on us and then rescues us with its mercy and its love. The preacher David Jackman tells the story of a young, severely handicapped girl whose father went shopping one day to buy a present for her mother. Uh, the car drew into the drive and she, she struggled out the door to, to greet him. He was carrying a heavy box that was bigger than she was. But she was insistent. She said, no, give me the box, Daddy. I want to give it to Mummy. And you could obviously see the problem, the several problems with this um, insistence of hers. But she kept saying, Daddy, I, and he said, no, no, you'll never manage it. It's too big, it's too heavy. Give me the box, Daddy. I have a plan. So he said, okay, um, here we go then. Here's the box. She said, great, thanks, once she had it in her hands. Now, she said, I'll carry the box and you carry me. That's what God does, isn't it, in Judges, in Christ, in the Bible. He will take our burdens and carry them, the things we cannot carry. But what he really wants to do is to carry us with all the resources he has as our deliverer when we learn to trust in him. Let's pray. We've already uh, said a prayer this evening which confessed our weakness and sinfulness before you. But we're reminded again from this passage of how true it is of us that we're weak and unfaithful. And yet, we thank you that the, the judgment we deserved, of which we see tastes in our fallen world, has fallen eternally on Christ in his mercy on the cross. We thank you for a deliverer, a great saviour, a mighty king. Help us to cast our burdens upon him, but help us also fully, unreservedly delight in our hearts to put our trust not in the things and people of this world, but in him, now and always. Amen.